Well, it's an honor and privilege to be with you again. Um, and uh, let's pray together before we get going tonight. Thank you, Father, for your love for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for all whom you've gathered with us this evening, Lord. We're just asking now for a special blessing from heaven, Lord. We have gathered here to meet with you, to hear from you, to encounter you. Lord, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, Lord, we just desire to enter into your presence, to sit at your feet, and to hear your voice this evening. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 1. So we finished our series through the book of James, and I don't know about you, but I personally found that very helpful and very encouraging and very practical in my life, and so I pray that it was for you as well and that you are encouraged um, to not just be a hearer of the Word, but to be a doer of the Word, to not just say that we have faith, but to show our faith by our works. And tonight, we're going to begin a series through the book of uh, 1 John. Uh, John, the letters of John, the book of John, and the book of Revelation, all written by the Apostle John, uh, are uh, generally understood to be the last writings that were written of the New Testament, and therefore the last writings uh, written of the Bible. Uh, John, uh, in his old age, he is the last living apostle, and as such, it makes perfect sense then that he is concerned about false teaching that is infiltrating the churches because he's, he's the last. He's the last apostle. He's the last one that has been especially commissioned by God to lay the foundation of the church. And so, of course, he feels a heavy burden to make sure that by the power of the Holy Spirit, when he passes on to be with his Savior, that the churches remain true to the true gospel. Most commentators believe that the book of 1 John is written to combat some kind of proto-Gnosticism or early Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a spiritual movement uh, that didn't really come to full fruition until the second century. Um, but, but here it seems to be the early influences of that movement. And basically Gnosticism held to a material uh, spiritual dichotomy. That is that matter in a sense, was inherently evil and spiritual realities were inherently uh, good. And it should be obvious how this developed into heresy within the early church because in the person of Jesus Christ, you had the material and the spiritual united forever. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And if you deny that matter is somehow inherently evil, then what are you going to end up doing is you're going to end up denying Christ. You're going to end up denying who he really was. You're going to say, well, that really wasn't Jesus or that Jesus wasn't really God because God wouldn't unite himself to evil matter. And so 
This, of course, would create all kinds of problems for the church. The Apostle John sees this coming. And what does he have to say about this? And why does it matter so much back then? And why does it matter for us today? That's what we're going to talk about in the book of 1 John. Of course, the book of 1 John has a lot to say about a lot of things, um, helpful things that I think we're going to be helped by. And so now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word from 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Word of God may be seated. I want to see three things from our text this evening. Number one, the Word of life verified. Number two, the Word of life materialized. And number three, the Word of life utilized. So the word of life verified, the word of life materialized, and the word of life utilized. First, the word of life verified. In verse 1 there, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He begins by saying, That which was from the beginning. Commentators take you know, different positions on this, but I believe that he's referring here to not just the beginning of the gospel, or the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, but to the very beginning, the beginning of all things, that which was from the beginning. By putting the beginning in the very first line of the book, it seems to be a clear reference of Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. And Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here John writes, That which was from the beginning. That is, Jesus was from the beginning. The one that he wants people to know about, the one that he's writing this letter concerning, uh, uh, eagerly, earnestly desiring that they know the truth concerning this person. Is, is that this one is one who is from the beginning. That is that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. So we serve a triune God. One being who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, God the Son forever added humanity to his deity. 100% God and 100% man. The Eternal God stepped into the world as Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself verified this in a number of astounding ways. In John 1.15, John the Baptist said this. He says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, of course, John the Baptist is older than Jesus by a few months. But not according to John the Baptist. 
According to John the Baptist, Jesus goes way before John did. He's before him. In John 8, 57, it says, So the Jews said to him, that's Jesus, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's clearly no ordinary man. God the Son was from the beginning. He is from the beginning. And that's what makes this claim that John makes all the more astounding because he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You have to think about it, that this is an astounding claim. John is saying that the one who is from the beginning, before anything else existed, he existed. And yet he entered into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. And John says, and I saw him with my own two eyes. I heard his voice with my ears. I touched him. With my hands, him who was from the beginning, I touched him with my hands. These books, John, the letters of John, Revelation, most believe that the letters of John were written in the late 80s, early 90s AD. This would be some 60 years after the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, that's a good two to three generations after the events of which he's writing. John's an old man now. Now, in some sense, you know, it's not really that long. You know, the older you get, you look back and you realize all those years, they don't really seem that long at all. But it is long enough for The younger people, the people who weren't there to see Jesus, two to three generations is long enough time for people to begin to wonder, did that really happen? Was it really like that? Is is this just some crazy old man? Or does he actually know what he's talking about? But John, he says, no. You see, he's an old man now, but he remembers See, some of you older people, maybe you remember. Maybe you remember something incredible that happened or an incredible person that you once knew from a long time ago, but you remember. You remember very vividly who they were, what they were like. In fact, if you heard their voice, you would recognize it to this very day. You remember. John is an old man, but he hasn't forgotten. He remembers If Jesus Christ spoke to him, he would recognize his voice. He can still see Jesus. Even though he's an old man, he can still see Jesus walking down those dusty roads. He can still, he still remembers sitting around the fire in the open field sharing the bread and the food. He remembers rowing the boat with Jesus. He remembers He remembers seeing that blind Bartimaeus cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus healing him. He remembers standing there in Bethany and Jesus calling out to the tomb and Lazarus walks out. John's old, but he remembers. 
he remembers his master. And so John is writing this letter, one of the last letters to be written in the Bible. And, he's, and he tells them, he says, that which was from the beginning, he says, we heard him. We've seen him with our eyes. We've looked upon him and have touched him with our hands. This verb, looked upon, it means to examine closely. John was just not an acquaintance of Jesus. John was one of the twelve apostles. And not only that, but he was one of the three. One of Jesus. He, in fact, in the book of John, he kind of subtly describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was probably Jesus' best friend. Human friend in this world. He was not just an acquaintance with Jesus. He knows him. He remembers him. In this word, it says that we have touched with our hands. That it, it can be used to describe the grasping of a blind man trying to feel his way around. In fact, that verb touch is the same verb used in Luke twenty four thirty nine, where Jesus tells his disciples after he rose from the dead, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself... Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so the same word is used by Jesus right after his resurrection to tell his apostles to touch him to do what? To verify with their own hands that he's alive, that he's real, that the same one whom they saw go into the tomb is the same one who's now out of it, alive and well. So this is the word of life, a living, then that's what John says. He, he is a living, breathing person. The one from the beginning is the one whom I, John, personally have heard and seen and touched. And guess what? If you believe in him, one day you will too. And so you can see how this would undermine what the Gnostics were saying about the separation of material and spiritual things. You see, Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter 1. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For we, for when He received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, of course, is talking about the transfiguration. When they went on the mountain and Jesus was transfigured before him and they heard the voice born from heaven and Jesus stood there talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter is writing this letter and he's saying, we, <laughs> we didn't follow some kind of miss when I'm telling you about this. Peter says, I was there on the mountain. I heard God speak from heaven over his son. And he's the one that I'm telling you about. You see, this is the heart and the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not 
first rules or religious activity. Christianity is about a man. The heart of Christianity is a person. So we have to get this, if we're going to get it, we have to get this to get it right. When we, when we talk to other people and plead with other people to come to Christ, we're not, we don't do that to get them to come to church or to make their life better. We get them, we, we are trying to introduce them to a person who can change their life. That's what Christianity is. A man who has lived, who has died, who has risen. Whom these men who we trust, who wrote the Bible, who gave themselves to make Christ known. They saw him, they touched him, and they told us what we've seen. What they saw and what they heard and we believed because of their testimony. And we, by faith, have met him. And one day what we only see now by faith will be swallowed up by sight. It'll take no faith to believe in Jesus in heaven. Faith is for now. No need for faith later because we'll see him face to face. So number one, the word of life verified. Number two... The word of life materialized. The word of life materialized. Verse 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. And was made manifest to us. I think we kind of have to think through here. Is what John means by what he says the life. Because we've been talking about Jesus But if you read the passage carefully, realize he actually never says Jesus. He says the life three times. Once at the end of verse 1 and twice in verse 2, he refers not to the name Jesus, but to the life, the life, the life. What does he mean by the life? Is the life a reference to the message that gives us life? Is life a, a reference to Christ's work that gives us life? Apart from some clear textual clues, it could easily be either of those things. But it seems to me that when John is saying life, he is using life to refer to the person of Christ. And the reason I believe that is right there in verse 2. Because he says, the life which was made manifest, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Here it is, which was with the Father. That phrase, with the Father, I believe is our clear clue He's personalizing. He's, uh, he's personalizing what he means by the life. The life was with the Father. Well, who was with the Father? Well, God the Son was with God the Father. It seems to me that the life refers to the person of Jesus. And, of course, it makes perfect sense to refer to Jesus as the life because Jesus himself is the source of life. He's the one who gives life, the one who has life in, in, fact, in himself. And in fact, he himself called himself the life. In John 1, 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John five twenty six. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, To him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So John is not really taking any leaps here by calling, referring to Jesus as the life. You want life? You got to go to Jesus to find it. That's it. 
That's the only place. The Father has granted, the Father is the giver of life, and the Father has granted life in Himself to the Son. He has granted all things to the Son so that He can have life in Himself. Jesus is the life. If you want life, it's got to come through Christ. You got to go to Him to find it. And verse 2, so verse 2 here is really an aside to explain further what he means by the word of life that he t- talks about in the verse 1. He's explaining what he means by the word of life. That this life was made uh, manifest to him. It was, uh, it was revealed to them, to the apostles, this, this eternal word of life. And th- that word made manifest or revealed, it, it, it obviously it implies a pre-existence, right? Something has to exist before it can be revealed. It has to exist before it can be manifest. What John is saying is that the word of life, God the Son, he was pre-existent. And yet at the right time, at the appointed time, he appeared. He was made manifest. He was revealed in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. He was with the Father. And yet he came down to us to be manifested to us. He is the eternal life that was with the Father. And we see this in other places as well. In John 1.1, as we read before, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Same language as the eternal life was with the Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who's the Word? And Well, John... uh, Chapter 1, that same chapter, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who's the Word that John's talking about? Well, the Word is the one who became flesh. The one who was God and who was with God has now become flesh. That's amazing. John wants to make crystal clear the pre-existence of Jesus. In Jesus Christ, eternity stepped into time. In Jesus Christ, the Creator stepped in to creation. In Jesus Christ, the author, the playwright, stepped onto the stage. See what's happening here? The author of life stepped in to the play. He entered into the play, the drama of human history. And so all this happened. Jesus came. God the Son was manifested. He appeared at the right time. And not only was God the Son manifested at the right time, but in Jesus Christ, um, God's eternal purposes were manifested, were brought to light, were revealed. God's eternal purposes for sin, for salvation, for humanity, and the world were made manifest in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished 
death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So that is, when, when Jesus Christ came, not only was God the Son manifested physically, seen and heard and touched, but all of the purposes of God for the world were manifested in him. All of human history revolves around Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. That all the plan of God for the entire human history to work about the salvation of a people of himself for his eternal glory forever. All were revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why elsewhere, Paul uses the language of a mystery. Paul says that the gospel is like a mystery. What does he mean? He means that it was hidden. You see, we've just gone through the journey. We've gone through the journey of the Bible and we, we, we scanned the Old Testament and we saw that everything was pointing to Christ. But it was in a mysterious way. It wasn't clear. When Christ came, now that Christ has come, we can look back and we can see it everywhere. We can see Jesus on just about every page of the Bible. But see, but that's because we, he has come and now we can look back and see it. But beforehand, they knew something was coming, but it wasn't clear. It was mysterious. But now that he has come, all the purposes of God have been manifested, have been revealed. All the promises of God found their fulfillment when a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit and a child was born without sin. And he was called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he came, and he really came. And John was really in that boat when Jesus called out to him and said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And John, through his writing, still proclaims to us today, tonight, I've seen him. I've touched him. I've heard his voice. Do you believe his testimony? Will we believe John's testimony? That's the question. The word of life verified, the word of life materialized. Number three, the word of life utilized. Verses three and four. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, John verified this word of life with his own eyes, with his own ears, with his own hands. And this word of life, this eternal word of life was manifested to him. In the fullness of time, the word became flesh. And remember, John, and at the end of that verse, John is writing that. In 114 that we just read, it says, The Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. That's what John's talking about. He's seen His glory. And these apostles, if you think about it, John and the others, they received an unbelievable privilege, right? 
God is not obligated to give, to give everybody the same things. Jesus only chose 12 apostles. He didn't, cho- he didn't choose everybody to be an apostle. They had a special place. They had a special purpose. Jesus tro- chose the 12 apostles. In particular, he chose three to be his closest companions, James, Peter, and John. And what, what happened? They got to experience things that no one else in the world ever experienced. They got to walk with God in the flesh. They got to hear his voice. They got to receive the secrets of the kingdom. Jesus would teach to the crowds, but then they would go back and they would ask him questions and he would personally teach them concerning the word of life. They were there. They were imbued with power by God, by Jesus, and entrusted, and uh, instilled with the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. They were given a high privilege and a calling and experiences that no one else in the world has ever or will ever get to experience. Why? They, they didn't receive that experience for no purpose, but they were granted that experience. They were granted to be those who Jesus himself said would sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They were granted that experience and that authority, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and granted to lay the foundations of the church. They were granted all that for a purpose. It's not for no end that they were granted that. What was the purpose that they were granted to experience Jesus like no one else got to experience him? Well, he told them right before he left in Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see... With great privilege and opportunity and experience of power comes great responsibility. They were entrusted with the experiences that they were granted because they were also the ones whom Jesus was entrusting what? The laying the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And they had the responsibility to make disciples of all nations. They were granted to be eyewitnesses of Christ in order to tell other people about him, right? That, that which was from the beginning, which our eyes have, which, were, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. They were granted to see Jesus in order to proclaim Jesus. And I'll tell you tonight, you were granted to see Jesus in order to proclaim Jesus. We do not receive the experiences that we have for no purpose. But we are granted them by God to know God so that we can then proclaim what we have seen and heard concerning the word of life. We might not can say we've seen him with our own two eyes and, and touched him with our own two hands, but we can say, we can say, I've seen Jesus. I know him because he's changed me. 
because I've seen him act here and here and here and guide me here and answer this prayer and save this person and change this person and provide in this need. And I've seen him over and over and over again. And I proclaim to you what I have seen and heard concerning the word of life. We're not saved for no purpose, but we are saved to proclaim the truth about the word of life. And so we have this privilege, like the apostles did, to make Christ known. Don't you want to make him known? Don't you want to make him known? Tell people about him. Pray. Pray for your one. we got the prayer guides out on the table. Pray for him. Use that prayer guide. It has a little journal in it every day. Journal. Write down those prayers. And here's, and here's what you can do. You write down those prayers for that, those people in that, in that journal. Every day you pray for them for 30 days. And don't stop. Keep praying for them. But write down your journal every day. And guess what? When God saves them, give it to them. Tell them, I've been praying for you. And God has worked and he has acted. And here John gives us a couple of reasons why they proclaim what they do. In verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, John, he's he's an old man now. And, um, you know, getting, you know, I don't presume to speak from experience, but getting old ain't easy. And a sad reality that we probably don't talk about enough is that if you, get, if you live long enough, everyone you knew was dead, is dead. John is old. He's the last one. Peter, dead. James, his brother, dead. First one to die. James was the first apostle to die. Herod killed him with the sword. We never know for sure if John knew Paul, but almost for certainly he knew him. Paul, dead. Everybody's dead. Except for John. But of course, they're not dead dead. They're very much alive. If anything, John's probably a little jealous. He's had to stick around in this crummy world longer than everybody else. But here, here he is. Still here he is. And he's writing these letters. He's writing this letter to these churches. And he says, what we have seen and heard, we testify and we proclaim to you. Why? So that your fellowship may be with us. You see, when you become a Christian, you enter into a new family. The family of God. And all of a sudden you realize that you may have blood family, but it's not the same. It's not the same as spiritual family. Family through the blood of Christ lasts a lot longer. But you see, John, he's writing this letter because what? Because he wants them to have fellowship with us. You have people that you want to have fellowship with us. They don't have fellowship with us, but you want them to. You want them to become part of our family. You want them to know what you know. You want them to have seen what you've seen, to have tasted of Christ what you have tasted. 
And that's what John is saying. He says, we write these things to you so that you may have fellowship with us. We want you to be part of our family. And that's what we get. We get to go out and tell people, we want you to be part of our family. We want you to know what we know, taste what we taste, see what we see. And he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the essence of our fellowship. When we are, when we are reconciled to God and have fellowship with God, then we automatically have fellowship with all of God's people. You see, some people totally confuse that. How can you say, Chad, I love you, but I can't stand your children? We're not going to be friends. <laughs> but no, if you enter into my family, guess what? You're, friends, you're family with everyone else who's already my family. That's why we need each other. That's why we gather together. That's why the Bible says don't neglect the gathering together. Why? Because we're a family. And we want people to have fellowship with God. And when you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with us. And the final reason that John says he writes to them in verse 4, he says, we write these things to you so that our joy may be complete. When you love somebody, nothing brings you more joy than to seeing them, than, than seeing them come to know the truth. Nothing brings you more joy than seeing, than having deep and true and eternal fellowship with the one you love. Nothing brings you more joy than that. So John is, and, nothing, and John is saying that nothing is wrong with that. It's, there's nothing wrong with seeking the joy that you get that comes from seeing others come to know our God. John wants that joy. He wants the joy of knowing that those whom he loves has fellowship with the Father and the Son and with him. There is no greater joy than to seeing someone captivated by sin set free. There is no greater joy than seeing someone bound into the kingdom of darkness, be transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. There's no greater joy than seeing someone who ran hard and fast after all the things of the world, things that wouldn't last, and to see God work in them new passions, new desires, new loves. There's no greater joy than that. And so it's right for us to pray to God and say, God, give us that joy. Give us that joy of seeing others come to know you. And so we have the word of life verified, the word of life materialized, and the word of life utilized. That which we have seen and heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that we proclaim to others. If you haven't met this word of life, if you, if you don't really know him tonight, please do. I'll be glad to introduce you to him. And for all of us, remember Jesus. <laughs> Talk to him. 
walk with him. Sometimes we forget he's real. He's alive. He's a man. Sometimes we forget that. But look, John, he sat with him. He talked with him just like we can talk to each other. Don't forget that that's what Jesus is like. He's every like, in every way like we were, except we are except without sin. And one day, we will. We'll hug him. We'll sit at his feet. We'll see his hands in his side. We'll talk to him. We'll hear his voice. Well, you can talk to him right now in anticipation of that day. And we can fellowship with him. And as we fellowship with him, we fellowship with one another. And as we fellowship with Christ, he's the one who fills us with his spirit where it overflows to empower us to proclaim him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the word of life who has...